So if you don't know me, my name's Wes, and uh, this is actually my second time preaching because I preached right before this. So um, uh, what I've done in the past, I don't think could be considered preaching. Um, it was more like standing up and talking about things. Um, and I don't know if I consider this preaching. Uh, I like to think of it as teaching because it's what the Lord's laid on my heart. So um, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2 today. And, uh, as I was preparing for this, the Lord, like I said, the Lord's really laid this on my heart and, um, I think it is apt for where we're at, um, but it's also timeless. Um, it's something that doesn't really change, uh, even though our culture and times change. Um, but as I was studying, I, I'm the type of person that wants to learn as much as possible about the subject. Um, the, the fault of that is that once you get so much information, you're like, what do I do with all this? Um, and so narrowing it down and making it concise is like really difficult sometimes. So um, bear with me if I run off on a tangent. Um, I didn't do that the first service, so that's good. Oh, also, uh, this one, I wanted to mention this to the first service, but I didn't. But they can still watch it if they watch this one. And that is my point. If you attend the first service, you see something that nobody else sees it's not broadcast on the internet this one's broadcast so why do you guys all come here you should go to the first one then you can go home and watch the second one too and get twice because it's never the same each time right all right also my mom is watching from pennsylvania so hi mom um she'll like that um okay so back on the topic that was a tangent that was not in the first service you see how this works uh so all that information it's really easy to go down like these rabbit trails and then get off into the weeds and like forget whatever point or theme that you were trying to stay on. So um, I am doing my best to try to boil it down, condense it, make it concise into one overall theme. And it's difficult, I find, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, because it's like every single sentence you could go off on a rabbit trail on. I don't know if you guys find that too, but it, it just speaks to the infinite depth of God's word. And I find beauty in that. But um, I want to start uh, actually not in chapter 2, but in chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 25. And the reason I want to start there is because it's kind of like a primer for, for chapter 2. And in fact, chapter 2 isn't really the main point. It's kind of the supporting evidence of that last portion of chapter one. So I'm going to read um, this right now, just straight through. And, and there's four things I want you guys to keep in mind. One, there's a call to action here. Two, um, I have down in my notes obedience, but really what it is, is obedience in suffering. The third one is holiness. And the fourth one is the simple good news. So pay attention to those four things as we read the last part of chapter one. It says, therefore, oh yeah, I forgot this too. Um, oh, thanks. I'm reading out of the ESV, so if you're like another Bible version, that's okay. We can talk later. Um, I'm going to pray real quick. Lord, we, uh, we want to approach your word um, with clean hands and a pure heart, and we want to uh, give all glory to you. So we just ask that your spirit leads right now. Lord, you were faithful in the first service um, to work your work, 
and we just ask that you work it again uh, to mold um, our hearts, each and every one in this room, um, with the kids downstairs even, uh, and the teachers too, and to just uh, come humbly before you and to be changed by you more and more into the um, image of Christ that we are asked to fix our minds on. So, um, yeah, just go before us and let your spirit move right now, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. All right. So verse 13, chapter 1, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That first point I told you guys to remember is the call to action. And here in verse 13, we see uh, the ESV translates it as preparing your minds for action uh, with a footnote, um, which is a lot of other translations, gird up the loins of your mind. And this might fall on uh, our ignorance in our society, but not knowing what girding up your loins means. But back in the day, uh, when everybody wore robes and tunics and such, if they were going somewhere in a hurry, hiked up their skirts, and they buckled them so they could run. And so I think in our modern lingo, it might be better translated as roll up your sleeves because there's work to be done. So I want to start off by saying that because this is a call to action. So roll up your sleeves, O Christians. There's work to be done. Second one is obedience. And I, I qualify that as obedience and suffering. And that's really what the nature of this is all about. It's what the nature of this, this letter was about, was suffering. And we'll get more into that later. The third one's holiness. We see that, um, we see that Peter writes in verse 15, uh, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. 
And the last is just the simple good news. It's simple, guys, right? The story of Christ coming to us, for us, paying it all for us, is a simple message. So as we read through chapter 2, we're going to work through section by section. Um, I want you guys to keep in mind those four things. Roll up your sleeves, O Christians. Obedience and suffering. Holiness. And the simple good news. So let's start out in verse 1. It says, we're going to read through uh, verse 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So that first part there, put away. If you guys ever, I don't know if anybody ever played sports in high school and they like got their varsity jacket with their letter and all the cool stuff. I don't know if they do that anymore. Do, do they do that anymore? Varsity jackets? I don't know. But for us old fogies, I had a varsity jacket. I played high, uh, high school soccer and I got a varsity jacket. And, you know, at, at some point in your life, like you got to stop wearing the varsity jacket. You, you come into maturity, you grow up. And so if you see like a 50 year old dude still walking around in their high school football jacket, that's a little weird, right? Like you would question that. And so what, what this uh, phrase here put away is kind of like that. Like at some point we take that varsity jacket off and we put it in the closet or we, we throw it up in the attic to collect dust or maybe some people burned it. I don't know. But like mine, mine, I don't know. My mom can attest to this. She's watching, uh, maybe mine's still at my mom's house. I don't know. It's probably stored away somewhere. I have. I never wore it. It was too big for me. It was never something that I wore. But um, it exists somewhere. I know that. But it's been put away. And so th- this connotates this garment that you're taking off. That's soiled. It's dirty. You you shouldn't be wearing it anymore. And that soiled garment is rolled up in a ball and tossed away. Maybe burned. I think that's what Christ asks us to do, to forget it. We have to remember that these fleshly works that are listed here, these five things, are our old self. And we are called out of that. And I think this is what Peter's attesting to, that, that all of these things, what we were, are to be put away. They're not who we are anymore. And so these five things are qualified with the word all. There are no exceptions. None. Everything that can fit under these five categories, all of it are to be put away. And if you guys remember in in Galatians 5 with the fruits of the Spirit, the first one listed there is love, right? And it seems like the rest of the fruits of the Spirit kind of grow, sprout out of love. Love is listed first, gentleness, kindness, all the rest come out of love, right? I believe this is kind of true here too. That first word malice is actually a general wickedness. That's what it means. It means wanting to cause harm, wanting to injure, an intent to. And out of that, all the rest of these, the other four, 
kind of sprout out. The word deceit, uh, I know the KJV translates it as guile. This is trickery. This is deception. This is working towards your own ends, manipulating the situation for your gain. It's all about you. It reveals impure motives. To note, and remind yourself of this later when we get to it, I'll help you remind yourself too. The opposite of deceit is fiduciary. And if you think of fiduciary, you kind of think of, oh, it's something to do with the financial world. Like you put a financial advisor in charge of all of your wealth, your finances, and they look over it. And the point of that person is to look over your wealth, invest it in things, not because they get something out of it, but because it's in the best interest of you, their client, right? So just to contrast that word deceit, just keep that in mind. Next one's hypocrisy. And I, I think it's interesting because deceit and hypocrisy, it just has an and between them. It's like almost like they're merged together. And like how often, like we know, like Jesus called out the Pharisees as being hypocrites, right? Why? Because they deceived. They put on a face. They acted. That, that Greek word in, uh, uh, for hypocrisy is literally an answerer. That's all they are, an answerer. They're not doing anything. They're fake. They're pretentious. They pretend at whatever they're doing. And they, they will manipulate and deceive. Envy is spitefulness, ill will, detraction. Detraction is, is when you uh, try to devalue somebody else or something else. To diminish their worth. To take away I, I kind of think of, uh, of this being the reason why theft is wrong, is a commandment for us not to do. The last one is slander, and this one might be taken different ways, but all-encompassing, it literally means to speak about others, and it carries a negative tone. So it's evil speaking, backbiting, gossiping, defamation. You're trying to speak negatively about someone, to reduce, just like envy, just to reduce their value in somebody else's eyes. And I like what Chuck Missler said about this. He said, gossip does more damage than any other sin in the church. Guys, are we talking about one another negatively? Are we talking down towards one another behind their back. Why? These five things we're told to put away. It's not what Christians do. It's not what Christ calls us into. And so this is a break from your past. We have gone into the grave with Christ. All those sins, those old ways have been nailed to the cross with him. They've been put into the grave with him. And thank God they're still in the grave. But that's not to say that it doesn't rise up. The old man tries to come back. And we can all attest to this. It's, um, it's hard when we get um, 
when we feel that flesh bubbling up and, and that old man trying to rise back out of the grave and grab a hold of our lives. But here's, um, here's where we get to the next part, that pure spiritual milk. That word pure, some translations say unadulterated. It's actually, in the Greek, it's actually the opposite of deceit. There is no impure motive here. It's completely true. And that's kind of deep because it, it reveals that there's no impure motive of God. God is not impure. His motives are, are true, are worthy. And that word spiritual is actually the Greek word logikos. And um, at the root, it has the same um, word that's found in John 1, 1, where the word became flesh, logos. And that word means logic. It's where we get our word logic from, reason or word. And so logikos refers to the belonging to the logic or reason or word. And so this pure motive, which belongs to the word, It's milk. This is the good news, guys. That was that Peter said in verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's Jesus. So what is milk? We live in the dairy state. I'm not originally from here. So uh, we had cows back home, but not like here. And everything's cheese and you wear it on your heads even. Um, but in Hebrew culture, it was, uh, it was very vital. You know, we, we know them to be shepherds. Um, so most of the milk that they had was like sheep and goat milk and that was the norm, but it was a vital part of their diet. They, they lived on a large part on milk and its byproducts. We think of it in the promise that was given to Abraham and his descendants, the promise of the land of milk and honey that they would inherit, um, it's a complete food. It's, it's nourishing to us. We can actually technically live off of just milk. If we needed to. Additionally, the quality of milk, it's something that, that lingers on the palate. It's thicker than water or wine. It's of substance. And a lot of times it, it's aided or it aids in cleansing the palate or um, alleviating spiciness from foods. And it adds a quality that's not like anything else. It's almost sweet. You crave more of it. So my question is, have you tasted this milk? Peter's referencing Psalm 34 here at the end, verse 3. It says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. These are the fundamentals of the kingdom, guys. In Isaiah, when he was prophesying against Ahaz, who was not a cool dude, he was ruling at the time, he was not a good dude. And he prophesied that Assyria would come and destroy most of Israel. And he said that uh, there was going to be a lot of famine and there was going to be a lot of 
pestilence and a lot of things happening. And that Ahaz was being contrasted in, we all know Isaiah 9, Emmanuel, being contrasted to the one true king and the differences in their characters. Ahaz fell away. He sinned. He backslid, turned his eyes off the Lord. And he contrasts this in, uh, or rather reminds us of, in verses 21 and 22, it says, In that day man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. So there's that promise again, referring back to the land of milk and honey. And even in that affliction, in that suffering, in that that kingdom being stripped from Ahaz and really much of Israel, there was that pure spiritual milk remaining. There were curds, there were honey. Think on how the milk uh, is the word of God. Think on how it is Jesus and what that simple gospel is. Milk is a simple thing. We feed it to our, our young babes. And when we're in affliction or when we're in joy, we come back to Jesus and we turn our eyes towards him, remembering what he's done for us, remembering what he's dragged us out of. That's the simple gospel. But who is Jesus? Jesus is something other. Jesus came down from some place other. He was not from this world. Jesus was born into this world by other means, in other ways. He lived in this world like something other. His very nature through and through, his character, was something other. And I propose that this other, this something other, is holiness. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8 right now. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. You guys know that stones and rocks are naturally dead. There's no living quality about them. They're just there. But here, Peter presents 
Jesus as a living stone. And it speaks to this otherness, this holiness about him. In Matthew 16, when Jesus uh, asks his disciples, what do they, who do they say I am? And so they go through this list of people, characters that they, people say that Jesus is. And then he asks them, well, who do you say I am? And Peter, like he is always, bold and to the front, says, well, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Jesus' response was that, that is the rock I will build on. Now, unfortunately for the Catholics, that rock is not Peter. That rock is Christ. And Peter, who wrote this letter, I think knew that. That stone was Jesus and it was chosen and precious. And in that, Jesus calls us stones, rocks, dead things to become living stones. We're called to this otherness too. But what is that otherness? Like I said, I, I put forward that it is holiness. And um, I want to read an excerpt from this book. Uh, my, um, I refer to him as my gospel dad. Um, James Trammell. He's been a good brother to me, and uh, he actually lent me a book by T. Austin Sparks called The School of Christ, and uh, that was that was last year, and I that impacted me a lot. Um, gave me a very new perspective on who Christ was. So I want to read this, uh, this excerpt from here. Um, Sparks says, To make two or three other things very real to us, the first of which is the altogether otherness of Christ, how altogether other he is from ourselves. Taking the disciples who went into his school, it was not the school of the Holy Spirit in the same sense as ours is, but, is, but the result of their association with the Lord Jesus during those three or three and a half years was just the same. The first thing they learned was how other he was from themselves. They had to learn it. I do not think it came to them at the first moment. It was as they went on that, it is as they went on that they found themselves again and again clashing with his thoughts, his mind, his ways. They would urge him to take a certain course, to do certain things, to go to certain places. They would seek to bring to bear upon him their own judgments and their own feelings and their own ideas. But he would have none of it. At the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, his own mother, with an idea, said, They have no wine. His reply was, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What have I to do with thee? That is a weak translation. Far better. Woman, you and I are thinking in different realms. We have, at the moment, nothing in common. Thus, throughout their lives, they sought to impinge upon him with their mentality. No, all the time, he was putting them back and showing them how different were his thoughts, his ways, his ideas, his judgments, altogether different. In the end, I expect they despaired. 
he might well have despaired of them had he not known that this was exactly what he was doing to them, doing in them. Catch that, and you have got something helpful. Lord, why is it that I am always caught out, always making a blunder? Somehow or other, I always say and do the wrong thing. I am always on the wrong side. Somehow I never seem to come right in line with you. I despair of ever being right. And the Lord says, I'm teaching you. That is all. Deliberately, quite deliberately. That is exactly what I am bringing you to see. Until you learn that lesson, we shall get nowhere at all. When you have thoroughly learned that lesson, then we can begin constructive work. But at present, it is necessary for you to come to the place where you recognize I am altogether other than you are. The difference is such that we move into altogether opposite worlds. <laughs> right. One thing I like about that is when he says a constructive work, and I think that leads on to the next couple of verses here. Because Christ is other, because he is holy, because he is a living stone. Peter's saying here and, and reaffirming from Psalms, um, Psalm 118 actually, that that stone, that living stone is set as a cornerstone. Do you guys know what a cornerstone is? Like we still use like that type of of premise in our construction today like the, the point was in order to lay a foundation that was true you need a stone that that was hewn in such a way to to be at a right angle and so they would make that stone in order to base all the other stones of the foundation off of that way when you get two legs out and it was perfectly 90 degrees then you can it's real easy to make parallels and perpendicular lines off of that that's what Christ does that's who Christ is so off of that cornerstone, we have two legs that were built, trust and obedience. And as we'll see in a little bit, that foundation of trust and obedience were formed by the laying down of the apostles and the prophets. And us as being called to be living stones, we are built on top of that foundation. And so those two things, as the old uh, hymn says, trust and obey, come back and back and back because that is at the foundation. It provides strength and stability, this foundation. The practicality of Christ sets us true. That simple gospel sets us true. It brings out the life in us to become these living stones. Do you guys know that you become what you worship? Maybe some of us have worshipped uh, money or reputation, status, our jobs, our, even our families. Maybe we've worshipped sex, alcohol, drugs. At one time, these gods were called Baal and Molech and Ishtar. They built temples to them. We have these gods around still. But when we worship those gods, we start becoming like them. 
For a really long time, my idol was sex. I worshipped it so much that I now have the title of sex offender for all of my earthly life. Christ calls us to put off of all that. All the gods that we worshipped. All the things that we devoted our lives to. All malice. All deceit and hypocrisy. All envy and slander. These things are put off. And every derivation of them, they're put off. Becoming like Christ means we worship him. Who we are is because of who Jesus is. That leads to our next section. 9 through 12 reads, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Praise God. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. talking a lot. This right here is an exhortation of holiness to become like Christ. What God's laid down are these three things first of which is a chosen race. Israel was chosen. But it's not just about Israel anymore. Romans 9 says that we've been grafted into that tree. We. The exhortation to be a chosen race is for all of us. Isaiah 43, 20, 21 says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Guys, we are wild beasts. We are jackals in the wilderness. God has called us out. He has tamed us. And he expects us to be tamed. This also leads into, I'll get a little out of order here, but leads into a holy nation. Uh-oh. There it is. 
That word that we often hear is pagan, um, bandied about these days as like being some religion. That actually has its roots in the Greek word ethnos, which is literally the nations. It meant the Gentiles, everybody outside of Israel. So when somebody says that they're a pagan, of course you are. You don't believe in Jesus. That's what that means. And so I'm going to back up just a little bit because when you're a pagan, you are a wild beast. Before we knew Jesus, we were wild beasts. It reminds me of, of uh, and I'll share this a little later too, it reminds me of, of just the, the theme of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the nation of wild beasts. To back up a little bit, we're also exhorted to become a royal priesthood. Kings and priests are not synonymous throughout history. They're, they're, they've been mutually exclusive. But through Christ, who embodied both of those roles, we've been called to be royal priests. So I know Melchizedek was a king and a priest, and he was kind of abnormal, and a lot of people will say, oh, he's like Christ, you know, picture of Christ in the Old Testament or whatever, and you can believe what you want about that. However, the one true royal priest is Christ as our high priest. Now I'm really messed up. Zechariah 6, 12 through 13 says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Who do you think that is? For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. A priest sat on the throne. This is Jesus, guys. He built the temple. He sat on the throne. He's there right now. So to embody that that calling of royal priesthood means that we depend on him, his otherness, his holiness, to make us into that. Back to the holy nation. I already said that ethnos is the nations. We were called out of that from wild beasthood, from being jackals, predators. All those five things that we talked about at the beginning in verse one, we've been called out of that. We've been made into something else. Peter says they're sojourners and exiles. That's who we are, a temporary resident, one who has a citizenship somewhere else. In Hebrews, the hall of faith, you might remember, talking about a lot of the, the fathers of, of the faith through, through time. And in 13 through 16 verses uh, 
referring to Abel and Enoch and Noah. The writer says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We're reminded of this in Ephesians 2. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, again those words, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the part I really like. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When we were beasts and jackals in the wilderness, we were strangers and aliens to God. We've been brought out of the nations into the nation that he has created, being called royal priests, being called a chosen race, being called living stones, being set in place true in that foundation. And for what purpose? So that God can inhabit it. What this means is that every situation that we find ourselves in this world, it should be different than the world. And the importance in it is that we need to seek discernment in the separation between the kingdom and the world. Where is that line drawn? Where is that boundary? In verse 11, Peter writes, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That word abstain literally means to hold oneself constantly back from. And I believe that he's referencing the passions of the flesh to verse 1, all five of those things and every derivation of it. We are to constantly hold ourselves back from that. Guys, the gospel and its message may be simple, but it's not easy. We're called into this otherness, this holiness with Christ. But that dead man tries to rise up at times. And that war against our soul is suffering. Christ as being fully man and fully God. Fully man, he felt these same things. We forget sometimes the temptations of Christ and how Satan tried to get him to forfeit his throne. 
He knows every temptation that we face because he's lived it himself. This right here speaks to the nature of suffering and the nature of obedience. And that's why I, I put that qualifier on just obedience when we first began. It's not just obedience. It's, it's easy to obey when what you're at, being asked to do is easy. Is no sacrifice to you. But obedience gets harder when you suffer. The best defense in this, in this suffering, is simply honorable conduct. Peter mentions this numerous times in, in what we've already read. But I think of uh, what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, try to bring some more light to that. He asks us to set our, our minds on things or embrace the things that were lovely and fine and attractive and winsome and noble and all those other ones. It's about being above reproach. Uh, Plato, the great philosopher, he, when, when he had detractors, when he had uh, people that were criticizing him and, and calling him a hypocrite, his response to them was, I will live in such a way that no one will believe what they say. That's what we're, what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Matthew 5.16 says, let your light shine so others may glorify God. This outward conduct of the body is what it means to have citizenship in heaven. Our citizenship is qualified by our honorable conduct. I'm reminded of uh, Colossians 3, primarily verse 2, but 1 and 2. Uh, verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. And what I take that to mean in this context is that we need to discern what the real battles are. We know in Ephesians that it says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? The people that are sitting in this room, we're not wrestling against each other. The people outside in the world, the ethnos, the pagans, we're not wrestling against them. This is a spiritual battle. Here comes the hard part, one that might be challenging and maybe convicting, especially in this day and age, when everything is politicized, everything is charged in a way that sets people against one another. And I'll preface it by saying, you become what you worship. There's two sides to what I'm about to say. They are two sides of the same coin. The first part is, if we align ourselves with the ways of this world, we fail in embracing our citizenship in heaven. I'll repeat that. If we align ourselves with the ways of this world, we fail in embracing our citizenship in heaven. Now the flip side. 
If we align ourselves with an abject and hostile approach to the world, we fail to embrace our citizenship in heaven. That coin needs to be rendered under Caesar. It needs to be given over. That's not our battle. It matters not whether what political party you choose to vote for. It matters not if you identify as red or blue, Coke or Pepsi. That's not our battle. You guys know that God and country are not synonymous? Anybody go to Life Fest some, this weekend? Yeah. Cool. Zach Williams? Awesome. Uh, Liz and I went with uh, Brother Jay. Um, he got us tickets, and that was really cool. But we went on Friday, and we saw David Crowder, which if you haven't seen David Crowder in concert, you got to go because he's amazing. And he has a great beard. Um, as we were walking... Um, I saw a woman with a shirt on, and the back of the shirt said, God and country above everything, no matter what. And I struggled with this after I read it. And I thought, didn't Jesus say to love the Father and to love people? Where does country come in? Are we not a holy nation? Is that not what we're called to? If our citizenship is in heaven, what are we doing battling things on earth? If we put this country on equal standing with the one true king, we either elevate the country to godhood or we lower the king to commonality. Let me say that again. If we put this country on equal standing with the one true king, we either elevate the country to godhood or we lower the king to commonality. Here's part of the good news, guys. God's not common. He's holy. He's something other. When we start putting God in the china cabinet next to all the other dishes, it's wrong. The next part says that it speaks to honor. Who are we to honor? What does that even mean? Honor means to value and esteem and respect. And these also are part of Christian citizenship. There's four parts here that are outlined. Peter's pretty succinct in this. It says, honor everyone. Everyone. Value, esteem, respect. Why? Because they're created in God's image, that's why. It says to love the brotherhood. We're supposed to love God's family. 
all of us here love them. All that gossiping that can happen in church, talking behind the scenes, the maliciousness that can happen, that can spring up, that dead men trying to rise up from the grave. It's not what we're called to. So as a fear of God, we are to revere and be in awe of him. And until you respect him, you're not going to respect anybody else. You guys know that our freedom comes from God, not the state. No constitution can give us freedom because true freedom comes from Jesus Christ. And this again reminds me of of that theme of judges, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. That liberty that we have in Christ, as Peter says in verse 16, it's not license to sin. Just because we are founded in him, we can't do whatever we want. We are called to something else, something other. That's part of fearing him. The fourth part, I sum it up as just saying authorities. And those are those who are over us. That may be the government, that may be slaves. I forgot to read a whole section, it's okay. We'll go back and read it then. But just as man was made in God's image, authority was made for a similar purpose. There's an order about God. And he assigns that order in his creation as well. How are we to obey that which we can see and obey the God that we cannot see? If we don't obey the ones that we see, what is it? It works both ways. And now, because I forgot to read it, let's go back. <laughs> 13 through 20 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God." I actually kind of like that I forgot to read that because suffering is such an integral part of 
of this message. And it's what we have to keep in mind as we walk this Christian walk. To have a proper perspective of suffering, to be mindful of God in it. To be obedient throughout that suffering is very important. The early Christian martyrs faced a lot of brutality. Um, we all know the stories of being thrown into the Colosseum with the lions. They were burned at the stake. That was one of Nero's favorite things to do, apparently. They were flayed. Strips of skin, thin strips of skin being peeled off until they bled to death. Horrible things. In Asia Minor, where the Christians were at that Peter was writing to, the persecution didn't get to that point yet. Nero was in power, and they were starting to feel a lot of this stuff in Rome and around that vicinity. But in Asia Minor, it, it wasn't to that point. But they did face lies and slander and verbal abuse. The torture and the death was yet to come. It reminds me a lot of how our country is. You may walk outside and be in the world and someone say something negatively about you when they find out that you're a Christian. But have you been flayed? Torture and death are yet to come. We may see that, even in our lifetimes. But the defense to this is to behave properly. That's obedience. And despite the suffering that we may face in that unjustly, by no fault of our own, we need to obey. And it's specifically in those moments of suffering unjustly that we feel that our hurts are justified and because of that it's harder to lay those down at the cross it's harder to turn those things over to Jesus you guys know what just suffering is for a while I, I thought that there was no just suffering I guess in a sense there's not. And I think in this context, it's not real suffering. Like when I committed my crime, I went to jail for 20 months. Did I suffer that? Yeah. That was my consequence. If you sin and are beaten for it, what credit is it to you? The more powerful testimony is when we suffer unjustly and we continue to obey the Lord. What I'm reminded of here is Hebrews 5. The writer says about Jesus, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It really ties a lot of that stuff together, doesn't it? 
This leads us into the last section here. 21 through 25 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Hallelujah. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This will be the only Greek word that I share today. I had a whole list of them, but didn't feel like I needed to. That word example there in verse 21, it's the Greek word hupogramos, and it means underwriting. So like we think today like you go to the insurance agent and they have an underwriter and they underwrite all of that legal mumbo-jumbo stuff about your insurance policy. It's not quite like that, but it's something like that. In, in this day, the... It was referred to as like a teacher or an artist who was writing or drawing away and they would make whatever they were doing in order to show their students how to do it so that their students would then see that and be like, oh, okay, I can follow that. And then they would replicate it themselves. It was a form of teaching. So Christ is our underwriter. He wrote, underwrote our calling with his own, all the suffering, as unjust as it was. Verses 22 through 24 really highlight how other Christ is. And it contrasts the works of the flesh in verse 1 that we read about. In verse 22 it says, He committed no sin, that means there was no malice. There's no general wickedness about him. It says that neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's quite literally no deceit. In verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't slander anybody. He didn't backbite. He didn't gossip about other people. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Again, no malice, even un justly suffering. There was no malice. There was no intent to injure anybody. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Trust. The very act of his sacrifice is proof that he was not an actor or a fake. He's not a hypocrite. He did it. There are eyewitnesses. He died on that cross. The act was also proof that he did not seek to deprive or detract from anybody. The reason for his sacrifice was for us, not for himself. In obedience to the Father. Submission. 
And all that is capped off, like I said, with unwavering trust. He trusted his father that what the promise was would be fulfilled. That death would be conquered. In verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus is our fiduciary. All the wealth that we have has been given over to him. And he is the one in control of it. And he is looking for our interests over even his own. That was done in the ultimate way on the cross. By his wounds you have been healed. Some versions say his stripes. Our wounds that were healed are not physical. Anybody with cancer, anybody with a disease that could be fatal knows this. I'm not saying that it can't happen. But the wounds that were healed were spiritual. All the things in our heart, all the ways of the old man, all of our idols that we worshiped for so long, all of it was cast off and healed by the love of Christ. And that was so that we could find access to the Father, to go into his inner sanctum, into his throne room, to commune with him, to be one with him. So there needs to be a right and proper focus. And we need to reiterate again who Jesus is. In verse 25 it says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We all know that shepherds were, we talked about before, the shepherds were an integral part of ancient Israel. And I like, um, I like this quote from uh, Sir George Adam Smith. He wrote a book called The Historical Geography of the Holy Land, talking about shepherds here. He says, With us, sheep are often left to themselves, like out in the pasture, you know, like just they're in a fence somewhere. Like that's like the modern way of dealing with sheep, apparently. But I do not ever remember to have seen in the East a flock of sheep without a shepherd. In such a landscape as Judea, where a day's pasture is thinly scattered over an unfenced tract of country, covered with delusive paths still frequented by wild beasts and rolling off into the desert, the man and his character are indispensable. On some high moor, across which at night the hyenas howl, when you meet him sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning upon his staff and looking out, over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart. You understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of his people's history, why they gave his name to their king and made him the symbol of providence, why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice. It speaks so beautifully to who Jesus is, all of those things. Those delusive paths as we wander through this life that when things get hard, we're warring against our flesh, suffering in the flesh, in temptation, suffering unjustly at the hands of our detractors. 
still frequented by wild beasts. We are in the world, guys. We're dealing with those that don't know the Lord every day. Rolling off into the desert, that wasteland. Jesus is indispensable. He fights off the wild beasts, the hyenas that are howling, seeking his sheep. He's sleepless. You guys know God never slumbers. Never. Weather beaten and armed, those are his stripes, guys. But he carries a sword. Everyone on his heart. Think about that. The other word is overseer. This is where we get our word bishop from, actually. But it's not unlike the bishops that we find in other organized religion. He's an administrator, a protector, a guardian, supervisor, magistrate. This is not an elected office. This is not an achievable position. This is who Jesus is. And all this illustrates the continuance of Christ's authority and guidance in the lives of his believers, of his sheep. So I want to wrap this up by coming back to chapter 1. I'm going to go in reverse order because it's kind of cool than what I did when I started. The good news is simple. It's milk. It's a foundation. What that means, guys, is that we need to re-evangelize to ourselves and to do it often. And what I mean by that is that we need to tell ourselves what the Lord dragged us out of, the darkness, and brought it into light. Where is your Egypt? What addiction did you struggle with? What idol were you worshiping? And we don't do it as a way of looking back in remembrance and, and, and longing for those days like Lot's wife. She turned to salt, by the way. We look back in gratitude for Jesus saving us from it. That's the simple good news. We need to keep in mind holiness Christ was our underwriter, not just to the sufferings, but to the holiness, that, that otherness that he is calling us to and that we should embrace. Obedience and suffering. It says in chapter 2, verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Are you disobeying the word? Are you being stumbled by it? Because if so, you're not being laid into that foundation and building that spiritual house that God is seeking to build, is seeking to use you to build. Disobedience is fatal. This stuff is real. Exodus 
And I am by saying this to prepare your minds for action, to gird up the loins of your mind, to roll up your sleeves, O Christian. There's work to be done. No matter what suffering unjustly that we face, no matter how much we wrestle with the flesh in that war for salvation for our souls, we need to continue entrusting it to the one who judges rightly. And suffering is not easy. It's a simple gospel, but everything that it contains that it leads to is not easy. But praise God we have Jesus. Praise God we have one who is the rock to rely on. Roll up your sleeves, O Christians. Father God, I thank you for providing this message and for um, just providing hearts that are open. Lord, if um, any are challenged today, I pray that this comes as a conviction and that it leads to growth, to sanctification, and to ultimately a holiness, Lord, that you called us to. Lord. If any are encouraged by it, then I ask that it lead to more fruit being produced. If any who are just looking to obey, that they see the simplicity of this, what God has asked us to do, Lord, and let us all keep our eyes set upon you. Let us not backslide. Let us not lose track of who our Savior is, the one worthy, true King, our High Priest. Lord, work th these things out in our lives, not just today, but every day. And let us focus on the holiness of yours, your otherness, so that we may become more like you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.